This boy and girl are going to be well equipped when the time comes to take their places as worthy members of adult society. Aloha, y'all. This is Daniel Eisenman, the host of the Breaking Normal podcast, where my guests are all invited based on the frequency of synchronicity and all trailblazers and the breaking of all things normal. Aloha, y'all. All right. You ready for this next show? And the shows have been great lately. And I am just, I'm getting more and more concerned and suspicious that it seems that um, Spotify may be censoring some podcasts, such as the one I did with Drew McManus from Satsang, lead singer from Satsang. It looks like they took it off. And I'm wondering if it's because I mentioned some alternative ideas around another idea that I'm not really looking to talk about right now because I definitely don't want this one to get censored with Sir Ronald Cohen. We're going to figure out something though. For people that want to listen to that Drew podcast, send me a message. It should still be on iTunes. You might want to start listening to these podcasts right away. Goodness gracious. But the podcast guest today, Mr. Sir Ronald, I guess I shouldn't say Mr. Sir. Let me restart that. Sir Ronald Cohen. And um, let me tell you about him, okay? <laughs> he's basically creating the impact revolution. And he's a preeminent international philanthropist, venture capitalist, private equity investor, investor <laughs> and social innovator. The impact revolution proves that changing the world and making a profit can go hand in hand. And check this out. He was once an Egyptian refugee whose family escaped to England with only 10 euros to their name. And he has blazed through a trail through hard work and understanding economic struggle. And he's referred um, by the British press as the father of social investment and a compassionate capitalist and a father of venture capital in the UK. <laughs> so you're going to want this. Oh, he was knighted in 2001. Look at that. He's the author of the book, Impact Revolution. You'll hear us talking about that. We even talk about the C word, and I'm wondering how long this episode will last because of that. Um, and we also talk about tribe vitamins. So I'm going to do the honor of reading a, through a couple of testimonies, just the golden thread of some of the testimonies here. Let's start with Michelle Norman, loving tribe vitamins, she says. The micronutrients and the mission of this company make these products a no-brainer for me as a busy, as a busy mother of five what? And a full-time ICU nurse? What? Money to get her on the podcast. I was looking for organ supplements that could help improve my daily performance, my overall health, and immune system. After about a week, I felt a huge difference in my energy and stamina throughout the day, choosing bison liver and bison heart from the USA. Wow, you almost rhymes. It's like poetic. Using regenerative grazing practices and honoring the life and death of this majestic animal is giving me all the feels. Well, I got the feels, baby. Awesome, Michelle. Thank you for that beautiful expression. Holy moly, do do another one? Let's try this one from this guy that says, Mind Blown, Shaden from Hawaii. I am one week into this product. is mind-blowing. My energy is up. My nails are getting stronger. I used to have random liver pains, and I haven't had one yet, and inflammation is at a very low. Whoa. The last two days of work this past week, I was only able to get five hours of sleep followed by nine hours of solar work and still felt awesome after. All I got to say is if you're trying to be healthier or need to be healthier, that this is product is a real deal. I plan on taking this every day. Whoa. And then instead of reading a testimony for, I'm going to just share a conversation I was having with my friend Angel, who just texted me if you heard the ding. She was actually uh, prescribed iron supplements from her doctor because they said that the diagnosed her as having anemia or anemic. And yes, that's um, very common, very common for a lot of women. And very normal, but we're going to break that normal. And she realized, she said that before just taking the prescriptions, she had this intuition to do a lot of research. And she found that 
it might not be the best idea to take this um, manufactured iron, with, especially without having copper alongside of it. And then I got to explain to her how, isn't that amazing? The bison liver has iron and copper, and it's the bioavailable form of both. It's not manufactured in a lab. It's not some man's idea. This is this food that was on this land before humans ever put a fence up, and it's in the form of the liver of the Indigenous, the biggest indigenous animal of this land. And let me tell you, the lions, tigers, and bears definitely know all about that. It's pretty amazing to look into these research where, like, when wolf packs take down uh, an animal, that the alphas will get the uh, the liver and heart first, and sometimes they'll just like leave the meat scraps for scavengers. And it's just like, wait a minute. So the way this bass backwards United States food system is set up is where people are, most people are eating like scavengers. Nope, not anymore. Tribe vitamins eat like the ultimate predator. You are one. Enjoy it. I'm excited for my friend Angel to uh, let her intuition not only guide her way, but I, I have faith that she's about to get some really amazing results on that. And if you feel like that is someone like yourself or someone you might know, tell them. Tribevitamins.com. Okay. Enjoy Sir Ronald Cohen, aka Ronnie. Welcome to the show. Here we come. Hello, Daniel. Hello, I Sir Ronald Cohen. Would you like me to call you Ronnie, as I've heard from previous yeah. interviews? Yeah, Ronnie would be great. Well, it's great to have you on the Breaking Normal podcast, my friend. Well, great uh, to meet you. Where about you sitting? Um, where am I sitting? You said. Yeah, which uh, which uh, city? Oh, are you? oh yeah, I'm in uh, right now. I'm right outside Denver, Colorado, and we're about to experience a snowpocalypse. Apparently, I've heard. Two feet oh, plus. It's like unknown. It could be a record breaker. Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, I'm sitting in Tel Aviv where the weather is considerably warmer, I'm glad to say. Well, let's let's talk about Tel Aviv. And before we begin officially, I just want to welcome um, how I was introduced, Sir Ronald Cohen. Um, he wants me to call him Ronnie. And it's an honor to be sitting virtually and doing this podcast with you. Uh, it seemed as you've been dubbed the uh, father of British venture capital. You have a new book out called Impact, Reshaping Capitalism to uh, Drive Real Change. It seems um, as if you take investment uh, quite sincerely, not only for the returns, but the impact it makes on our culture. And that's a uh, super inspiring to me. And really what I may be most compelled by is this amazing, um, this amazing history you have um, with your family fleeing Egypt uh, when the persecution of Jewish people was happening. Well, the expulsion of, uh, rather than the persecution, but the expulsion of Jewish people. Well, right off the bat, this is what interests me a lot because uh, my understanding of my history of my grandparents, particularly my mom's, I mean, my dad's mom and dad, um, they were born in Poland and uh, they survived the Holocaust by creating a uh, potato garden under a graveyard and then eventually fleed to the United States. So I'm, I'm very curious about that history. Uh, how old were you when this was happening, when your family left I, Egypt? I was 11. 11. Wow. 1957. Yeah. And do you have um, memories? Do you remember? What do you remember? And uh, what is what what was the golden thread of what was happening in your life during that time and and that that part of the world? I remember it very vividly. Uh, And uh, I remember uh, 
seeing uh, posters in the street with a star of David and a snake going around it and Zionists uh, written underneath. I remember they're trying to go through customs um, to leave, searching my stamp collection under my arm and worried that somebody was going to take it away from me. I remember my dad crying on the plane, uh, taking off from uh, from Egypt. Um, you know, these are memories that uh, stay ingrained uh, in you. Yeah, I was just uh, discussing with one of my friends. I was telling her about the interview I was about to do with you and a little bit of your history. And she was like, yeah, it seems like all these people that have these horrific pasts that they transcended um, are now the successful ones. And I'm like, yeah, there are successful ones that have transcended those those traumas. And there's a lot that have not. Um, but it does seem to be a path for people that are some of the more inspiring figures today, They that they overcame some big adversity as a child. Do you yeah, find that? No, I, yeah, I think I think it does uh, spur you on. I mean, in in my case, uh, when I was interviewed by the headmaster of the school where my father thought I should go, a state school uh, in North uh, West uh, London. Um, my dad said to the headmaster, in order to convince me him to take me, look, it's not because he's my son, but if you take him, he'll be top of the class. And, you know, I couldn't let my dad down. I mean, from then, from then on, I just had to be top of the class. And I think, you know, there's the old joke, if you want to be successful, emigrate. Um, it does raise challenges, and as you overcome the challenges, you're quite Wow. Yeah, I've, I'm quite curious about my grandparents and what that happened uh, for them to make it to where I'm here today. And um, I know one of the things that was that was they did not listen to authority. How, how did they get out? How did they manage to get out? I don't even know all the details. I was like talking to my dad about that this morning. And allegedly when they were, I guess, capturing the people, my dad and his dad created an underground tunnel of sorts under a graveyard. And then for long term, they started a potato garden. And then there was a girl, a young girl that they caught stealing from the potato garden. Um, and her parents had her parents and her family had died and she was just on her own. And that, that turned out to be my grandma. They took her in and years later they got married and they came to the United States. And um, I am particularly curious though about a lot of the details that I don't know about yet. And um, you know, my, here we are the breaking normal podcast and that's the name of my book. And that's uh, what I, I do think that it's high times that people can team up um, beyond agreement and to really realize uh, which rules are to follow and which ones are suggestions. Um, and I'm curious like how this conversation and what I'm getting at is showing up today, maybe in Tel Aviv um, in Colorado, particularly I'm pretty alarmed by um, I'm alarmed by how the news 
can massively shift mass amounts of people to do something without thinking about it so much. And I kind of see our culture just being like a, a pinball of uh, fear, a pinball of fear that's being propagated and perpetuated by the news. And I'm just curious, how, how do you think the world is handling this and why they're handling it this way? And is there any improvements that we could make as a culture on how we're handling this pandemic and everything that's happening? Um, yeah, do you have any opinions on that? Because I, I, look, at, I look to you as a, a, a wise a wise elder right now, especially considering your history and everything you've done up to this point and everything you're standing for currently. I would just be really curious about your opinions on, on what I'm bringing up right now. Well, I think we're living through a period of great transition, Daniel. Uh, with regards to media, we've shifted from reading newspapers and listening to television, which uh, has had editors pouring over the content um, to a world where information reaches people from different directions. Uh, it's unedited and uh, it can contain fake news. Uh, and so we're living through a period when these uh, social media are completely um, un un unchallenged uh, in a way in their ability to shift opinion uh, and manipulate it. But it's a, it's a transition. We're going to get through that. We're going to come to the regulation of information uh, that is broadcast. Uh, and, and once again, uh, we would exclude a fake news and vitriolic comment and, and everything else. In the meanwhile, it's sort of reshaping the way in which our democratic system is, is working. But I think you refer to COVID. Uh, I, I think COVID is accelerating uh, this transition in ways we couldn't have contemplated. Like, uh, who would have thought uh, just two years ago that uh, we would be having these conversations on, you know, on Zoom? Uh, that uh, we'd be sitting in our offices or rooms uh, all day, talking to people right across the globe sometimes addressing hundreds or thousands of, of people in, in one go in, in this way. So uh, it's accelerated everything that involves remote communication and remote health and you know, remote education and, and remote everything. But it's also accelerated our perception of the challenges we face. Like the fact that climate is suddenly bursting on the scene after four decades of people like Al Gore hammering on about the damage that, that we're causing, it's partly uh, because we are capable of observing now, we're stand, standing still on the edge of the wide world, if you like, and we're observing what's going on around us, and we're seeing floods, and we're seeing uh, uh, fires and, uh, you know, and, and, and everything else. And at the same time, we're seeing gaps between rich and poor that we've never seen before. We're seeing, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. We're seeing rebellion in the streets of, of France. Uh, we're seeing rebellions in the streets of, of Chile and, and, and the Lebanon. 
we're aware that people who left behind are stuck behind, while others are making absolute fortunes if they happen to be involved in technology or, or finance. And so it's leading us to, in the way that you're questioning me, it's leading us to question ourselves and, and, and our leaders about where we're heading. And that's what my book, Impact Reshaping Capitalism, is all about. Well, quickly, I am a voracious Audible reader, and I went to go download the book, and I'm here in Colorado, the United States, and for some reason it said it wasn't, I'm not able to download it here. Just side note. I don't know if you know why that might be. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why, because um, it was was, uh, read uh, by a British actor, and uh, my publisher would like to have an an American voice, so so we're uh, re-auditing it. Uh, if you like, but you, you can actually get it on uh, Audible uh, UK. Audible happens to be uh, a, a company that our funds invested in as a you know as a venture capitalist. Um, so it, it's nice that um, that it's grown so well and, and that um, you'd, uh, you're using it. Oh, okay. On that note, since you've <laughs> been potentially or par- partnered with investing in that company, I, I would say Audible as a customer is arguably one of the best investments of my life. I'm so happy that I have the membership. I'm so happy that I have a book out on Audible. Um, I love going on hikes and getting massages and listening to audiobooks at faster than usual speeds. It feels like the message somehow gets like transmitted into my bodies beyond my blood-brain barrier. And um, I'm a huge fan of it. I'm just, I just, as you were praising the technology that we have at our fingertips these days. It's just so profoundly amazing to me that I have uh, the plethora of wisdom from lifetimes of people, one click of a button way that someone reads it right into my ear hole. I think it's amazing. Yeah. And, and this technology is one of three very powerful forces that I see acting on the world to bring about the change that we've been talking about. Because this technology is enabling us through artificial intelligence, machine learning, augmented reality, to deliver impact that improves lives and the environment globally in ways humanity has never been able to contemplate. And it's meeting two other very powerful changes. One is the change of values, which I'm sure you share and uh, the young people around you share, uh, the millennial and, and, and the Gen Z uh, uh, generations uh, in particular, that uh, we don't want to buy the product of companies that are doing harm to people or to the environment. We don't want to work for those companies. And well, investors realize this, and you know, and they're shifting their investments to companies that don't do harm and preferably that do good. Well, I can uh, deeply resonate with that right now because um, when COVID really surfaced and it sh- showed what a culture shifter it was going to become, I, I, at that point, up to that point, I was hosting health retreats every season for about a decade. And realizing that wasn't going to be my reality for a little bit, I felt called to uh, the dietary supplement world to, to uh, call in this supplement right here, 
bison liver. It, all, all this is, is um, des- freeze-dried bison liver encapsulated so people can microdose on what I would say is nature's most potent multivitamin and America's original multivitamin. And it's an interesting game I'm in because 90 plus percent of bison uh, ranchers finish these animals on grain. They supplement them on grain at the end of their life. And I am not buying from them. I'm only buying from the, uh, the grass finish suppliers, which leaves me with very little supply. Um, and, and however, this, the thing is, the mission of this company is it's beyond just scalability. It's actually to bring awareness to the national animal of this land that people thrived on before there were ever fences or pharmacies and the land and the animal that's uh, the biggest animal of this land. And it's arguably the best for the regenerative agriculture aspects of this land. So um, I'm in the thick of what you're talking about. I'm in making the choice of no, no, I understand that like people are asking me, how is this going to work long-term if you have that little supply? And I don't know, but I do know in the meantime, I'm bringing massive aware- awareness to what matters. And I, and I do believe, uh, treating the national animal of this land more like the indigenous people did is something that would benefit uh, everybody living on it. So So, I I hear you. Yeah, so that that, uh, change in values uh, is leading to completely different ways of looking at uh, at business and at making money and at investing. Uh, it's meeting the technology we just talked about, and it's meeting another force which comes from technology too, and which brings us the ability, Daniel, to measure the impacts of a company's products, of a company's employment, and of a company's operations on people and, and, and planets, so that we can look at companies now and measure both their profit and their impact on the world. And that enables us to make much better decisions about where we put our money. Because the talent is going to the companies that are doing good and doing well at the same time. And the customers, as you are explaining, are making these uh, choices too. And so are the investors. So I think we're on the cusp of a revolution, the impact revolution, which is as big as the tech revolution was. It's built on the technology uh, advances that we're making too, but also on this huge change in in values and on this ability to measure the impacts of companies. Yeah, this is really exciting uh, stuff you're talking about here. Um, and I'm, I'm just taking some notes. I'm particularly excited about how you measure the impact because obviously profit it can be uh, is with money and is so easily measurable objectively, but how would you measure something um, like impact as objective as you measure money? So if you, if, you, know, if you look at um, the environmental impact of a company's operation, for several years now, companies have been putting more information out about their CO2 emissions, for instance. Uh, you can analyze the scientific data about the cost to the environment of a ton of CO2. And you can come to a price uh, of $100 or or, or more per ton of CO2. 
and then you apply it to the number of tons of CO2 that companies are uh, putting into the public domain. And you do the same for the water and for the other um, uh, environmental impacts that they have. So if you go to the Harvard Business School site and look at uh, IWA, Impact Weighted Accounts, which is an initiative I'm very proud to chair, you'll see the numbers in dollar terms, as you were saying, for 1,800 companies. And, it, you know, your mind boggles. Now, I'm, you know, British with my accent shows that if you reach out for a, um, a box of tea bags, twinings uh, um, made by Associated British Foods, you can look on this database and you can see Associated British Foods make more environmental damage in a year, $1.8 billion, than profit, $1.6 billion. Wow, so that's a that's an interesting chart. So that what is, how do people find this this uh, reference? HBS Harvard Business School HBS and then IWA Impact Weighted Account, and you look for data set, and and you just click on and it's open source and you can use it and you can spread the word about free of charge. Wow. Okay. Cool. Um, I'm going to shift topics real quickly because I want to make sure I talk about this with you within this hour that we have. <laughs> Tel Aviv. So I've been to every state um, in the United States and about 20 countries. And arguably, Tel Aviv was really the, <laughs> just the most amazing in so many, and not in always, you know, I, I, it all depends on what someone's looking for. But I was completely shocked by the overall fitness of the beach community there. Yeah. Um, not only physical fitness, but like uh, social fitness. I don't know if I've ever been to a place where I felt like I was around more advanced communicators in such a casual fashion and uh, as common as I was when I was in downtown Tel Aviv. I'd be curious uh, about your, what you think about Tel Aviv compared to other places you lived and maybe why do you think it has that, that magic factor? Well, I think uh, people are very gregarious, and I think, uh, you know, we've had a wonderful mayor who developed our beachfront so that you probably have 20 miles worth of, of running uh, paths or, or riding um, bikes or walking uh, along uh, the seafront, and you have open air gyms, as you've seen, you have volleyball and, you know, and surfing and, you know, and, and, and so on. But Israel is a pressure cooker, Daniel. And so people release the pressure by, you know, having, having fun. Uh, and as you say, they're very communicative uh, and, and they're very helpful, actually. Israel is a place where if you're in trouble, somebody will go out of their way, um, you know, to be helpful um, uh, to you. Um, so it's a, it, it's a corner of the world which still has a lot of security issues uh, with our Palestinian neighbors. But uh, aside from that, it's just unbelievable the change and the improvement that has taken place here uh, over the 30 years that uh, you know, I've been seriously involved in. 
Yeah, you know, another subtlety of that culture, and let me know if you think I'm onto something or not. I, I love studying like subtle differences and patterns of people, especially when it might be because of environment or culture in particular. And I find it pretty fascinating that people in Israel and Tel Aviv and in their communicative way seem to be much easier and at peace with disagreeing with someone or being like, or telling them straight up where like, no, 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 not how I think it is. Whereas somewhere in like the South, in the Southeast of the United States in Georgia, where I was from in kindergarten to college, to disagree with someone um, can be a very fragile situation. Yeah. Do, you, do you pick up on what I'm putting down there? Yeah, no, I mean, I think um, Israelis can be uh, a bit too open with their views and a bit too argumentative. Uh, and they are, as you say, uninhibited in expressing. Uh, that is certainly a, a characteristic. Um, I guess if you look at Mediterranean people, if you look at um, the Greeks and the Italians and you know, and others around the Mediterranean, uh, perhaps they are more uh, effusive in, you know, in, in arguments uh, <laughs> than, uh, you know, than other places in, you know, in Northern Europe or in the United um, States. Yeah, I find that all very interesting. I love just taking the, I feel like one of my um, duties and dharmas of being a human being on earth especially with all the technology at our fingertips coupled with what I'm passionate about is basically being an investigative journalist for life and aiming to accurately report what I see and what's happening for me uh, without being too concerned what other people might think for it and trust that it's continuously coming from a good place and, um, and praying for that and embodying that and speaking that. And uh, when I look at you, I mean, it seems like you've, obviously been inspired by so many different things, even with all the different investments you've probably been a part of. And I'm curious, like right now, today, like what are you most excited to talk about with who? What, what lights your fire these days? I am most excited to talk with young people about bringing impact into our lives into our businesses, into our investments. I really think this is going to define the current generation of young people. The era of just making money and not worrying about what the consequences are for other people and for the planet. It's over, Daniel. It's over. We can't cope with the inequalities and with the environmental challenges we face. Uh, with our existing system. We have to move beyond just making money to making money and contributing to improve lives on the planet. And the reason that it's going to catch on, which is a bit ironic, is I actually think it will deliver better profits as well. It's going to deliver better profits because you look at companies like uh, Tesla, uh, which, you know, didn't enter the automobile industry, because it was an easy thing to do, an easy opportunity to make money. 
it had a higher purpose. It had the purpose of shifting uh, away from uh, shifting us all away from the combustion engine. Yet in the process, Elon Musk has built the most valuable company in the automobile industry. It's worth as much as five of his competitors being, um, you know, put together. And so when I speak to young people today who are entrepreneurs setting up ventures, they're all talking to me about doing good and doing well. It's no longer just about making as much money as you can, doesn't matter how. Hmm. Well, that's inspiring for so many reasons. I definitely keep thinking about the project I'm working on when you are speaking. So that's, this is a very affirming conversation. Um, super thankful for your time. And do you have any questions for me? Yeah, what's the project you're referring to when you say you're Oh, uh, the tribe vitamins, because no. I'm a big believer in these animals uh, coming back. Uh, ba basically, before the Europeans arrived here, I think there were up to 40 million bison. And then um, in the early 1900s, they were down to almost extinct. Like certain scientists were starting to collect the bones because they thought they were gone. But they were allegedly about 400 left. Now we have them about 400,000. And the thing is that um, the supplement here, liver, and maybe I'm not sure if you incorporate liver into your diet. I'm imagining with your background, you might. Um, liver is the ultimate multivitamin for my research um, and from a lot of people's actually results and testimonies. It's packed with a variety of micronutrients. And this is a booming industry. Uh, for instance, right now, there's a, a supplement, I think on Amazon, that, that does New Zealand cows. And I think they do about $1.4 million in sales a month. And they're using New Zealand cows, which is cool, which is great. I bet the supplement really works. But my goal is to shift the demand from cow to bison. And then to shift the demand, not only to bison, but to only grass finished bison. So that maybe years from now, the 90 plus percent ranchers that treat the bison like cows and finish them on grain feedlots, maybe they won't do that in the coming years. And then my supply all of a sudden might quadruple. So I, I, th I just find it as like almost a fascinating sort of chess game that I'm in um, using probably your ethos without being that exposed to it. I'm really excited to dive into your book, but making sure that the ethos of what I'm doing and what I'm leading with is the best impact for the people and the environment. Okay. And I... Yeah, come on. Um, and I just like to balance that. Like it's kind of it's almost like surfing. I love surfing. I'm I'm just it's a real it's been a real balancing game, and it's demanded a lot. And I'm all in. And I love and I love what I'm doing with this. And I feel completely called to it. So I just find it like having this conversation with you at this time. Now that the website's been live for a few months, it just feels very like a, a affirming symbol for me. So I'm I'm very thankful to be here with you. Well, I think. Um your venture is one that seeks to deliver high product and, uh, and, and really the characteristic of the businesses, uh, successful businesses in, in, in the future is going to be that as well as delivering uh, high environmental and uh, uh, impact and employment impact. So I suppose the key is for you to measure that positive impact, like to 
to look at the scientific evidence, to look at the improvement that it makes in, you know, in the nutrition of people, uh, the avoidance maybe of uh, certain diseases. Like, I mean, I associate eating liver with increasing your iron content and reducing anemia and, you know, and so on and so forth. That's been our most powerful testimony are usually um, women, older women that may have had iron issues before consuming yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. So you then, you then focus on the higher purpose, which is to improve people's lives through a better diet, through your supplements. And the question I would ask you is, do you find increasing numbers of people around you thinking in the way that you're doing? Not just thinking about, hey, I want to make money, how can I make it in, in, in the fastest way? But asking themselves a question, what am I passionate about? And how can I use my, my passion and my skills to build a successful business that does good and does well at the same time? Oh, I would say that... I started on that journey of what you just said about right when I graduated college and my brother uh, graduated high school. That was kind of our game. It was like, what would we pay to do and how can we get paid to do it? And then it became, and how is this going to be the best for everybody? Like every time we get paid a dollar to do this, it's actually making the world better. We've been completely enthralled by that path for over a decade now. But I would say in the last five years, it seems like so many people have shifted into that space. It's arguably a problem. Like I've now started, I've now started seeing like certain coaches shift to like, you can't just do what you want. Like this is ridiculous and like making fun of millennium millennials and this attitude. But the attitude has that that has surfaced so strong so quickly that it, yes, I I see it all around me, especially in Boulder, Colorado, because Boulder, Colorado is known to be like the Silicon Valley of um, the superfood world or the dietary supplement world or the natural food world. Yeah. And do you think this is a passing thing or do you think this is... A <sighs> oh, no, no, no. I think it's here. I mean, everyone has the whole more technology in their pocket. Like 10-year-old kids have more technology in their pocket than vast majority of the world le world's leaders ever had. And that only seems to be, um, oh gosh, it's just, it's just going, it's, it's growing so fast. It's a, alarming how fast this technology is improving and getting refined. And yeah, little kids are growing up with this right at their fingertips. So I think it's, it's here. I'm so curious. Yeah. Keep asking questions. I'm curious. What do you think? <laughs> and this change of values that you refer to doing good and doing well at the same time. Do you think this is just a reaction to, uh, you know, to the last uh, couple of generations that were out to just make money? Or do you think it's deeper than that? And it actually is going to lead to a change in the way we run our businesses and how we invest? I definitely think both. I think both. I think there is like we're coming out of a bit of an emotional dark age in many ways that has even showed up in our financial system, especially how like capitalism is in bed with healthcare and at least the United States. And I mean, I just the, the fact that there's fast food restaurants at hospitals to me blows my mind. Um, 
I was actually pre-med and my mom and dad have been a pharmacist and doctor for over 40 years. So I do think that a lot of kids and people my age and younger, especially are like, what, what, no way, no way. So there is like a recourse, but I do think because the technology, um, it is deeper than that as well. Um, I, I believe the technology is a reflection of our technology, of our inner technology and of the light that we can bring, that any individual can bring into this world. And I think because now this technology has been manifested into a physical form into pretty much almost the whole world, um, there is such a high level of accountability. Um, and, and yeah, of course, when this light, anytime you shine a big bright light in an attic that hasn't seen that light for a long time, there's going to be some critters come out and there might be some chaos. Um, and I think, like you said, we're maybe in that transition right now. But uh, overall, yeah, I just think this is a huge, bright light of what now people are that much more obviously capable of. And um, with that level of accountability, I think, and that level of awareness, yeah, I think this is, this, this light is going to get brighter and brighter. That's my faith. How about you? Yeah, I, I think so too. And I think um, sitting here in Israel where I see a big push uh, to technology, and it's unbelievable now. Every big uh, U.S. venture capital firm is coming to investor, you know, to invest over there, um, uh, because Israel has real strengths in uh, AI and artificial intelligence and, 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 and the convergence of different technologies with life sciences and and so on and, and so forth. And I, I give you an example of the sorts of things I'm seeing. I'm seeing um, uh, a university professor set up a company to help the blind to see by creating spectacles with a little memory stick-like device on the side that whispers into their ear the page of the book they're reading or the banknote in their hand or whatever. So huge improvement in, in the lives of 35 million people in the world, potentially, and 250 million visually impaired people. But if you think in terms of impact, you ask yourself the question, how can my AI technology help the maximum number of people in the world? And you get a surprising answer, Daniel, that you wouldn't have got with traditional risk-return thinking, which is, well, what if you provided these spectacles to the 800 million illiterate people in the world? And you enabled somebody who's illiterate to read. What would that do for their lives and, and livelihoods? And all of a sudden, you've defined the market of 1.1 billion people instead of 300 million. And so I'm, I'm seeing evidence of this type of thinking of the creation of business models, uh, which can do good and, and do well. Uh, it can be in any sector, just like when technology arrived and people thought it um, wouldn't affect their sector, they were proved to be wrong. Technologies affected every single sector in, you know, in the world. And impact has started to do the same. I think we're going to define an impact unicorn as a venture that becomes worth a billion dollars and helps the lives of a billion people. Mm. I'll take a sip to that. Come on.
This reminds me of a story that I once heard. Um, I'll see if I can <laughs> briefly remember it. But it's this idea of a king that somehow got this technology where he could push a button and then he would experience whatever he wanted to, whatever it was. And it's, it's weird because uh, more and more our world starts to seem that way, especially like the next day delivery Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Um, but a bit, the, 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 how the story ends is that the king inevitably chooses like mystery. Uh-huh. Rather than rather, rather than anything he could actually desire. And um, I don't know what that what that reflects back to you, but I'd be curious. Well, I I think we are going to see industries transformed in the same way that Tesla has transformed the automobile industry. I think the banking industry is going to be transformed by impact. Like we have a banking system where the most vulnerable get charged overdraft rates and you know ten percent or more. Uh, on the basis that uh, they supposedly carry bigger risk or bigger administrative burden. But actually, technology enables you to deal with the administration and the credit worthiness by checking out through phone usage the personality of, you know, the personality of the user. I think we're going to see the food industry uh, transformed in the way that you've been suggesting. Uh, by companies competing uh, on the basis of healthier products with old established uh, leaders of their sectors being overtaken because they continue to rely on sugar and salt and oils and all the rest of it, which are harmful uh, to, to life. Um, I think uh, you know, we're going to see every sector uh, affected by impact. And so the question today for a young person isn't to just, oh, how can I find a product uh, that I can put into the market and, and, and make uh, money? The question is, as we were saying earlier, what am I passionate about contributing to and how do I create a business model that can deliver profit and, and impact uh, at the same time? Yes, yes, yes. That, I mean, and I love how you, the question being the leading, like the guide. I love, personally, I love letting questions guide a lot of my thought. Um, so I have another question for you. I'm not exactly sure how old you are, but um, I think you're may, maybe over twice my age, potentially. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, and yeah, you, yeah. you, how you're 35? 75. <laughs> Well, you think as sharp as many 35-year-olds I know. I'm like, this guy's a sharp, clear thinker. Um, and that gets me intrigued about because I know a lot of my audience is really into how to think more clearly and how to not only think more clearly now, but uh, long-term as well. Do you think you have any uh, tricks of the trade that may have contributed to your ability to communicate about such big pictures ideas and take such big picture ideas into the young age of 75? So I think um, you have ideas when you're young 
And with time, you test them out and you see how good your actual to forecast, uh, you know, performance is. And it sharpens your ability to create a microcosm of the world in your head that is close to reality. And when you've achieved that, you are able to predict to a much greater degree because you understand the way the world works. And so when I looked at venture capital and I was 26 and I came out of business school and decided to enter the venture capital business, and the average size of fund Daniel in, at the end of the 60s was $2.5 million. <laughs> You compare it with hundreds of millions uh, in, in a single fund today and even billions in venture capital and tens of billions in private equity. It's a completely different world. But the issue then was, has something changed? Is technology, the PC and everything that came after the chip and then the internet and so on, the cell phone, the internet, has something changed in a fundamental way? Is entrepreneurship a powerful force? Like, can a young 26-year-old create a company like Microsoft or like Apple and overtake IBM? And it was obvious to me, even at, um, you know, at, at, at that age, that young companies and ambitious young people would be more innovative than big conservative companies which had become, you know, very fat, um, you know, sitting on, on their big market shares. And so because you, you begin to understand how the world works, you can begin to predict that something is going to be big and you can take advantage of it. So today, when I look at the changing values, when I look at the leaps in technology that we talked about, when I look at the ability to measure the impact of a company in dollar terms and add that impact to its profit or subtract it from its profit, I say this is going to change the world. I say this is a major shift in humanity. This is like the evolution of our economic system to enable us to take advantage of technology and profit-making to improve the world instead of making money at the expense of people and the environment. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow, thank you. Thank you. Um, I have another have a personal question for you. Because when I was looking through uh, Wikipedia, I was just doing because, it, you know, most, I, most people I've interviewed, I know more personally about than I do with you. So thank you for breaking normal with me. And um, yeah, this is interesting. I like doing, I like this. I like this experience of learning, learning about you with other, alongside of the audience here, which is usually amazing people. So thanks for tuning in, everybody. Um, for myself, um, I have, and others, and anyone going through a divorce, do you have any um, guidance or perspectives on, how to alchemize that situation in the best way without knowing, you know, because it's, it seems like a common situation that so many people face. 
Um, yeah, do you have anything to say about that? You're, you're asking me an interesting question because I was divorced twice before I found the perfect woman for me. Hmm. And if I had to put down, um, you know, the failure of my first two marriages, I would say that at the time when I was an entrepreneur and, and needed uh, support, uh, I had married twice uh, young women who were takers rather than givers. And so you have to define whether you're a giver or a taker. Obviously, all of us are a mixture of the two. But we're predominantly one, usually, and find somebody that matches you. Now, for my life, uh, after my second divorce, I met the most wonderful Israeli film producer. We married 34 years ago. And Sharon, my wife, is a giver. And she's as busy as I am. It's very easy to compromise uh, when there are conflicts over our time or or whatever else. But uh, if you marry a young person who is very needy and you're not a giver and you're deep into the things, I can see you gazing deeply into your own, into your own mind, um, you know, and, and you're very busy and absorbed in doing your own thing and you need somebody by your side to, to help you and you have somebody who's needy, then you don't satisfy each other's needs. Thank you for exploring that with me. It reminded me of this book, The Go-Giver. Is there a book called that? Have you heard, heard that, that book? No. It's all, about, it's all about making that shift of uh, living the life of giving. Okay, well, I think all of us can give and take, but if we want to have a mate for, you know, for life, uh, then we have to think about it in, in these terms. And, and then, under those terms, are you, are you saying two givers are more compatible than a giver and a taker? Oh, no, I'm, I'm saying in, in my experience, uh, a giver and a taker is a very good combination, but that may not be true for everyone. Maybe two, two, two givers would be even better. I think I'm a giver too, by the way. I don't, and I think with time, um, you, you know, you free yourself of a lot of the pressure to succeed and all the rest of it. And you have more, uh, more relaxed attitude and you're able to, you're able to give more to, but for instance, in writing this book, writing the book, this is the third book I've, I've, I've written. Uh, the first one was on entrepreneurship, the second bounce of the ball, which is all by the way about predicting what others can't see. Everyone can see the first bounce of the ball, they can't see the second. And it was about entrepreneurship. The second one was a guide to the impact revolution, which I wrote about uh, three years ago. Basically, putting forward, it's a very short book. Everyone can download it from my uh, personal website, uh, ronald.cohen. Uh, uh, and, and, and you can download on impact free uh, of charge. And then yeah, we'll I put that on the show notes as well for everyone that's listening. We'll put your website in the show notes. And then, and then I thought, look, 
people hear this word in pain and they understand completely different things about it. Some people think it's a philanthropic thing, it's bound to cost you money. Other people interpret it in, you know, in, in, in different ways. And so there's a need to explain this major change which is occurring in the world today and which is reshaping the way entrepreneurs act and the way big business leaders act, the way investors act, philanthropists and governments act. Because this is major, bringing a third dimension to our DNA, if you like, a, a, a third helix to risk and return, bringing risk, return, impact is a major thing in, you know, in our history, uh, uh, the history of, of, of humanity. Now, I had to work very hard to write this book. My wife had to put up with me working very long days and weekends and, and, and so on. But she was always there by, you know, by, by my side, very busy making a, a, a TV series. I don't know if you saw a TV series called Valley of Tears, which um, was on HBO, is on HBO Max, but it was watched by millions of people here and, and across the world. About Valley of Tears. Valley of Tears, yeah. It's an area in the Golan Heights. It, it's about the uh, Yom Kippur War of 1973, which Israel very nearly lost and how young people took the brunt, uh, the brunt of that, uh, and how they reacted um, to it. So she was very busy with her, with her thing, and yet she was always by my side, supporting me. And so, I, you know, I, I mentioned it in, in, in Impact, she was, she and my, my kids, Amara and, and uh, Johnny and my son-in-law, uh, our son-in-law, all were really my partners in, you know, in in writing um, this uh, this book. Well, it's been a, I'm super inspired. Super inspired. Um, I, how do people? What's the best way to contribute? I'm I'm imagining reading the book for one thing, and if someone wants to reach out. What is that a possibility? How do how do people get involved with what you're doing? So the great thing would be I can't I can't deal with individual people. Obviously, I have so many uh, reaching out to me. Uh, but you can go to my website, and from my website you can see how you can join this impact revolution. Uh, you can find out more about it by downloading on Impact Free and. You know, purchasing uh, uh, impact, which is, you know, has much more information and evidence and thinking and so on in it uh, from from Amazon. The ebook is very cheap. I think I uh, two dollars ninety nine from memory because I want everyone to be able to afford to afford it. All the royalties are going to charity. I mean, this is about improving the world and uh, giving people like yourself. Uh, the tools and, and the framework uh, for you know for knowing how to how to do that. So well, I'm stoked and I'm excited. I, by the way, do you have an American reader for your Audible book? Uh, I'm not sure why you have a good suggestion. 
<laughs> well, go listen to Breaking Normal on Audible if you care. Okay. And if you like, if you like uh, what I read there, it's always I've always dreamt of reading people's books that I am aligned with that have not been read yet. If they needed that, so hey, I'll plant the seed. Okay, I'll, I'll do that. I'll do that. Yeah, it's, on, um, it's called Breaking Normal. And what would be great is for you just to spread this idea of impact that you can do good and do well, that you can make more money out of risk return impact than out of risk return. Uh, and, and, and that the government now really every, in every country needs to say, hey, companies have to publish audited impact accounts, impact weighted accounts, financial accounts that show their impact. If you can help spread the word, how old are you, Daniel? I was born in 85. In 85, okay, well, my daughter was born in 87. Oh, okay. nice. So you're 35. Uh, so, you know, if you can get your generation to view this book as the equivalent of sapiens, but for our economic system, you know, we've evolved as human beings. Now our system has to evolve. That would yeah. be hugely helpful. And that's another great book reference there. I love that audio book as well. And I, hey, um, I think we're already doing it. And I continue to su continue to support that mission. I plan to continue to support that mission. So looking forward to maybe crossing paths. Maybe we can read a newspaper in the Dead Sea one day soon enough. Why not? Let me know if you come to Israel. <laughs> and thanks again for your time. And uh, keep me in a loop if you uh, need someone to read that book because... I do think the best way of learning is teaching. Okay. I love that. I'll be, I'll and be thank back. you for being a great teacher and a great learner. We'll be in touch. Yeah. Nice to speak with you. Bye -bye. All right. Take care.